Welcome. It's November 30, 2021, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic world at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy. You can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group. And today, we are very fortunate to be joined by Ambassador Martin Indyk, who will be speaking to us about his new book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy, which was published just this past month. A former diplomat and senior government official, Ambassador Indyk is currently a distinguished fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He has served as U.S. Ambassador to Israel twice, as Senior Director for Near East and South Asian Affairs at the National Security Council, and as Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department, experiences that he draws on throughout the book. Master of the Game, I can say, is a gripping and compelling read, a vivid account of Kissinger's Middle East diplomacy during the Nixon and Ford presidencies, based on extensive archival research and interviews with the man himself. Kissinger was, of course, the National Security Advisor from 1969 to 1975, as well as Secretary of State from 1973 to 1977, and he thus oversaw the 1973 Yom Kippur War and its aftermath, among other key events. The book argues that Kissinger's diplomacy succeeded in creating a more or less stable regional Middle Eastern order within the U.S. sphere of influence, and that there are lessons to be learned from this experience. Ambassador Indyk, thank you for coming on the Caravan podcast. Thanks, Cole. Good to be with you. So as you can tell from my introductory remarks, I I very much enjoyed the book and I learned quite a lot from it and I do have many questions, but perhaps we can begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. Uh, what, What made you want to write a book about Henry Kissinger's diplomatic forays in the Middle East? Well, the world doesn't really need another book on Henry Kissinger. There are so many of them, but um, there are actually very few that deal in detail with his Middle East uh, peace process efforts that essentially dominated his time uh, as Secretary of State in the last four years, in his last four years in the Nixon and Ford administrations. Um, Before that, all the things that we remember him for whether it's detente with the Soviet Union or opening to China or Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, Chile, Bangladesh, etc., etc., almost all of those things took place um, while he was National Security Advisor in the first term. Uh, so in that regard, I think it was worth doing as a, as a work of deep history, especially because there's so much documentation now available uh, that's been declassified of all of his conversations, negotiations, uh, etc. And the Israeli archives are open as well. Uh, And uh, he's still alive, as you said, he's 98, but he remembers a lot of what happened then. And he was very generous with his time in sharing with me his his, um, uh, efforts, what he was trying to do, what he felt he was trying to do. So that's the the first reason. Second reason is a personal one. I kind of came to the American role in uh, resolving the Arab-Israeli conflict as as an Australian student uh, in Jerusalem back in 1973 when the Yom Kippur War broke out in October of that year. And I watched Kissinger uh, very closely. I was a student of international relations as he worked his magic on a ceasefire and then began his negotiations. And that 
whole period being there during the war was a formative experience for me. And essentially the reason why I've uh, devoted my career to to Middle East peacemaking, understanding it, writing it about it and participating in it. Um, but thirdly, when I uh, ended my stint as Obama's special envoy for the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations in 2014, I felt that there was something fundamentally wrong with the way that we were approaching the effort. Uh, four presidents had tried to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and four presidents had failed and I'd just been involved in the last of the failures. So I thought rather than writing about that, I'd go back to the beginning where it all began with Kissinger's diplomacy and try to learn from him, the master of the game, as I titled the book, uh, about how to and how not to make peace in the Middle East. So Kissinger comes into the White House in January 1969. It's a year and a half or so after the Six-Day War. It's the beginning of detente with the Soviet Union and the final phase of the Vietnam War. So how does he, in these circumstances, look at the Middle East? And how does it figure into his, his geopolitical vision? Well, as far as I can tell, he really didn't look at the Middle East much at all. He was preoccupied in other areas, particularly with the Soviet Union and, and China, and of course, ending the war in Vietnam. Uh, but he uh, became interested in it essentially because Nixon told him it was forbidden territory, forbidden fruit. He couldn't partake of it because he was Jewish. And Nixon's upfront about that, about suspecting that Kissinger had dual loyalties and therefore didn't trust him with it. That was like a red flag to a bull for Kissinger. If he was going to be excluded from something, he was going to make sure that he got found a way around it. It took him three years, but eventually he did get control uh, of the Middle East after going you know, toe-to-toe -to -toe with Bill Rogers, who was his Secretary of State, who had been left the Middle East as his preserve while Kissinger and Nixon went off and did everything else. Uh, so, so that's, I mean, it came to it, I think, essentially for personal reasons that had to do with bureaucratic infighting in, in Washington rather than any particular desire to engage in the Middle East or in Middle East peacemaking for that matter. But there was an important uh, coda to that is that he was very conscious of the way in which the Soviet Union was backing uh, radical clients in the region and using its supply of arms to build its position of influence in the region and to destabilize the region. And so he therefore, I mean, came at it originally, I think, with a, with a very cold war view of uh, needing to find a way to undermine the Soviet position of influence in the region and try to build the American influence there, which had been confined somewhat to the kind of peripheral countries of Israel, Iran, and to some extent Saudi Arabia. But the main Arab powers were, were all in the Soviet camp. And he early on looked at the question of how do we change that dynamic? And, and you know, one of his most memorable uh, statements to the press because it was his first press conference. Nixon didn't want him to be involved in Israel because he was Jewish. He didn't want him to give 
press conferences because he had a German accent. <laughs> but, but, of, but in 1970, Kiss, uh, Kissinger was let loose, San Clemente. And uh, he was supposed to be giving a, a briefing about Vietnam and arms control. The first question was about the Middle East. And he said then, our objective is to expel the Soviet Union from the Middle East. I mean, he was very upfront about it. It caused a huge headline. And I asked him about it afterwards. He said, well, it was my first press conference. I wasn't used to dealing with the press. He said, but I want you to know that I had extensive discussions with Nixon about that statement beforehand. So it was part of our strategy. Hmm. So that was his, his focus. It was all about Cold War rivalry with the Soviet Union, not about peacemaking between Israel and the Arab states. Right, and there's a... Uh... The, the early part of the book uh, details uh, some of the tensions and conflicts between, as you said, uh, Secretary of State Rogers and Nixon as national security, sorry, as Kissinger as national security advisor. And, uh, and they had completely different outlooks on, on Israel and, and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Can you talk a little bit about, about their competing kind of visions for, for that conflict? Yeah, so uh, Rogers and his advisors particularly Joe Sisko, uh, who was uh, his assistant secretary for the Near East, uh, really took a kind of traditional Arabist uh, view that Israel was essentially a liability um, and the United States had to find a way to uh, meet Arab requirements for uh, return of their territory that Israel had occupied in as a result of the 67 war. And uh, so they went off to talk to Moscow about how they could work together to try to promote a negotiation that would lead to Israel giving up Arab territory. Kissinger saw this as a huge mistake, thought that, that the only thing that would come of that was either that Israel, that the United States would succeed in getting Israel to give up territory, in which case the Soviet Union would would uh, claim credit for it with the Arabs because they were working with the United States on this, or the United States failed to deliver Israel, in which case the Soviet Union would blame the United States. But either way, it was the Soviet Union that would gain the advantage, and he made this argument, and basically, I think he convinced Nixon, but. But Nixon, who avoided kind of personal relationships and hated confrontation uh, and just wanted the Middle East to kind of go away and leave Will Rogers, Bill Rogers in charge of it. So he didn't want to adjudicate this. So it was only when the Soviet Union started backing the Arabs in doing dangerous things, like in particular backing Syria's invasion of Jordan in, in 1970, that Nixon began to come around, began to see that that uh, Kissinger was actually right. And, and it was only when the Soviet Union then, together with Egypt, cheated on a ceasefire that Rogers succeeded in negotiating between Israel and Egypt and moved all its the Soviet missiles up to the Suez Canal in, in direct violation of the ceasefire agreement mm -hmm. uh, that Nixon kind of finally conceded that Soviet Union was taking advantage of Rogers and it was time to give Kissinger responsibility. It seemed that uh, Kissinger had a view in the early part of, of Nixon's tenure 
that the Arab-Israeli conflict was the peace in that conflict was not necessarily per, not necessarily worth pursuing for peace's sake. I think there's a a line about m movement or motion without movement. He, he yeah. seemed to think that treading water was kind of uh, you know the the right policy and not actually trying to solve conflict. And that that seemed to um, annoy Rogers. Uh, is that did I kind of accurately uh, summarize that? Yeah, as I said, I think he, he saw that as just advantaging the Soviet Union, given the way in which mm -hmm. they were supporting the Arabs, and it's the Arabs that would benefit from a, a peace negotiation that led to Israel giving up territory. But there was a more fundamental reason for it even than that, which is that Kissinger himself was sceptical about ending conflicts in his view of, of uh, the world and the state system, conflict was, was a kind of natural uh, result of countries pursuing their national interests. And therefore, what was important in his view was not to try to end them, but rather to try to ameliorate them, to try to control them, to try to establish a balance of power in which the equilibrium would be in, in on the side of those who wanted to maintain order and therefore would be opposed to war. And, and that was essentially his, his approach. He wrote about it in his doctoral dissertation. He published it in his first book, which was about the 19th century mm -hmm. uh, order that was established in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars by Metternich, the Austrian foreign minister and Castlereagh, the British foreign minister. And they established uh, an, a, a system of order in Europe that lasted for a hundred years. And that's what he was about. That's what he understood uh, was the way to approach things. Try to establish a balance of power with an equilibrium in favor of the status quo. And um, that was the best way to deal with conflicts. So let's talk about uh, the order that he he was able to create. A lot of the book is uh, taken up with the 1973 Yom Kippur War and the dipl the diplomatic uh, maneuvering of, of Kissinger in the aftermath of of that war. So how how did he manage that crisis and how did he bring it to the kind of resolution that was favorable to the United States uh, and to order? Particularly, uh, how did he get? Um, or help Egypt to flip from the Soviet camp to the U.S. camp, right. which was probably so, his greatest achievement in terms yes. of Cold War uh, diplomacy. In the I think that's that's absolutely right. You know, I spend two chapters on on the nineteen seventy three war, kind of day by day account, because in Kiss Kissinger's uh, diplomatic performance during that war is, I think, a classic case study of, of superpower crisis management. And it's not as if he did it perfectly. Uh, he made several mistakes that could have resulted in the superpower confrontation. But overall, he did it brilliantly. And while the other national security advisors of President Nixon were all at sea and not having any basic clue of what the hell to do with this, he came in from the get-go with a very clear set of objectives, um, which were to ensure that Soviet weapons did not 
prevail over American weapons. Therefore, Israel had to win the war. Uh, but on the other hand, not enough to make it impossible for Egypt to come to the table and negotiate with Israel. And, and so he, he wanted to achieve a kind of equili a new equilibrium. He also wanted to sideline the Soviet Union. And he wanted to be sure that in the aftermath, Israel would be more flexible than it had been before the war when he had tried to probe to make some kind of movement, as you said, um, and, and was unable to do so. So it was this kind of complex of objectives which he played with during the war in a way that ended up uh, greatly to America's benefit. Um, the United States came out of that war with a ceasefire that put the United States and Henry Kissinger himself in the catbird seat to negotiate an Israel-Egypt disengagement agreement followed by an Israel-Syria disengagement agreement. But as you also noted, the overall objective was one that he borrowed entirely from his study of post-Napoleonic Europe, where Castlereagh and Metternich flipped France from being the revolutionary power under Napoleon to being a status quo power in, in the post-Napoleonic order. And so he did, he intended to do the same with Egypt. Egypt was the largest, militarily most powerful Arab state. If you could get it out of the conflict and flip it into the American column and out of the Soviet column, you would essentially shift the balance towards order uh, in, a, in a quite dramatic way. And so that was his North Star, flipping Egypt. And he succeeded uh, tremendously with it. And the, the effects are lasting to this day. It led to the Israel-Egypt Peace Treaty and to the Egyptian-American alliance. So one of the ironies about his diplomacy seems to be that um, it, was it was predicated on a, a deep skepticism about the, the prospects for peace between Israel and the Arabs. And yet he was able to kind of um, set the course for those later uh, peace treaties, particularly between Egypt and Jordan. Um, so perhaps um, you could help us understand why, uh, why was he so skeptical that peace uh, was, could be achieved? And why did he uh, prefer his, this more gradualist step-by-step -step approach? Yeah, it's a, it, you know, it, it, it looks like a contradiction. Here I'm writing a book about Kissinger's Middle East peace diplomacy. And I discover, and I say discover because it's not obvious, not obvious from his memoirs. It's, it's not obvious from the other histories um, that his skepticism about peace was, was again, derived from his own, own experiences, both as, as a student of history uh, and and as a participant in history as, as a refugee from from Europe, witnessing the impact of appeasement on the rise of Nazism and Hitler. So he 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 was very concerned that pursuing peace with too much passion and, and energy and not enough skepticism would actually achieve its opposite, would destabilize the order and result in war. And he talks about the paradox of peace 
in the, on the first page of his first book. In fact, it's actually on the in the title of his book. You know, a world restored, Metternich, Castlereagh, and the problems of peace. So essentially, he saw, he saw peace as problematic, as as a problem, not a solution. That said, he came to understand as a result of Sadat's launching of war in 1973 that his ability to stabilize the order in the Middle East required a legitimizing mechanism, something that would give the Arabs a stake in maintaining order. And that was the peace process. So even though he was skeptical of peace, he saw the importance of a process that would give the Arabs a sense that through diplomacy, they could regain territory they had lost to Israel in 67, rather than through war and dependence on Soviet arms. It was American diplomacy versus Soviet arms. But American diplomacy had to deliver on Arab grievances if they were to become status quo powers. And so therefore, he wanted a peace process. But it was a process designed not to end the conflict, but to ameliorate it, to, to uh, buy time that would in, eventually exhaust the Arabs of their antagonism towards Israel and give Israel time to strengthen itself, to reduce its isolation, and be in a better position, ultimately, when the Arabs were ready to settle, to give up the territory that it occupied in 67. So as you said, it was a step-by-step -step process in which Israel would cede tranches of territory to the Arabs, uh, but in return, Israel would not be asked by the United States to withdraw to the 67 lines, to withdraw completely from territory it occupied in 67. So he helps to create this, this order, this new equilibrium in the Middle East that's favorable uh, to the United States. And he helps to put in place the peace process, which continues to this day. Uh, but one could argue that both of those things, the order and the peace process, have been quite problematic uh, since Kissinger uh, left office. Uh, the order, of course, being disrupted by the Islamic Revolution in Iran in 1979, the emergence of non-state actors, partly supported by Iran, uh, and Hezbollah and Hamas, and the expansion of the settler movement. So I wonder, um, how do you evaluate the kind of the, the order and the peace process uh, after Kissinger? Was he able to create something that was sustainable, or was it ultimately um, disrupted by, by things he did not foresee? Yeah. Well, the order that he that he succeeded in creating lasted for more or less three decades. The order that Metternich and Castlereagh succeeded in creating lasted more or less for a hundred years, so a century. So he didn't quite make it in that regard. And but part of the problem was that those American policymakers that came after Kissinger knew not Kissinger. They didn't basically I think, understand what he was doing and um, ignored a lot, of, a lot of his basic precepts. And, and um, you know, he, he was very aware 
that American presidents and their advisors would have a hard time sticking with his conservative, incremental, uh, status quo approach. He knew that they would be drawn to the desire for immortality, the sense of divine providence that the United States, with all its immense power, gives to its presidents, and that they would seek the very uh, objectives that he was so suspicious about, like peace, ending, ending the conflicts in the region, and promoting democracy. And essentially, you know, that's, that's what presidents who came after him uh, uh, did in one way or another. Um, and, and so I think that tending to the balance of power, and, and he was always aware that it needed constant tending, uh, was something that's very hard for American policymakers to do. Uh, and so, you know, the revolution in Iran required a, a, an alliance to counter Iran because Iran was, had become the revolutionary power. Um, and, and the Iraq-Iran war was, in a way, uh, an ideal uh, test for balance of power theory. And uh, sure enough, the Reagan administration, that did not rely on Kissinger for advice, did tilt towards um, Iraq, towards Saddam Hussein, uh, to balance the revolutionary power of Iran. But, and here's the, here was the rub, when, when the Iraqis succeeded with American help in defeating Iran, uh, we needed to flip back to Iran to balance Iraq uh, because Iraq under Saddam Hussein with such a victory under its belt uh, would become the dangerous uh, anti-status quo power. And, you know, the idea that the United States would kind of make uh, a common uh, task with Iran to balance Iraq was just, I mean, you could see some of it in uh, the Iran-Contra affair and so on. It just, it, it was never going to work. We just weren't able to play the balance of power game in a way that that uh, the European powers uh, would do back in the 19th century. And so, you know, it was this combination of desire for greatness on the one hand and inability of the United States to to be a kind of um, pure realist power uh, meant that, that things started to come apart. But they really came apart when we kind of uh, threw caution to the wind uh, under George W. Bush and, and you know, toppled Saddam Hussein and opened the gates of Babylon to the Iranians in the process and, and ignored all the basic precepts. Uh, and then came the, the uh, Arab Spring. And, you know, we gave up on Mubarak, told him he had to leave, which was the exact opposite of what Kissingerian diplomacy would have required, which was to somehow find a way to stabilize the situation because Egypt was, as we've already discussed, so critical to the balance of power. Instead, we sent a signal to all of our 
status quo friends in the region that they weren't safe. Um, so in the combination of that with, as you said, the rise of non-state actors uh, like ISIS and Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, um, I mean, just, just led to the breaking apart of the order that Kissinger had so effectively created. Well, there's one recent development in the Middle East, and I'm referring, of course, to, to the Abraham Accords between uh, Israel and uh, the UAE and later Bahrain. Um, that does seem to perhaps accord with uh, the Kissingerian um, approach to the Middle East about exhausting the Arabs and uh, expecting that over time you will see this kind of normalization. Do you think that he, he looks at it in that way and that do, do you see the Abraham Accords as kind of the, the vindication or culmination of, of his approach? Very much so. I think it, it, it uh, exactly as you said. His expectation was that eventually they would exhaust themselves. And indeed, the Emiratis, when they justified normalizing relations with Israel, said, we're tired of this conflict. Um, so, yeah, it, it's very much uh, within his overall approach to the region uh, to see Arab countries normalize with Israel. It's very much a product of his diplomacy which, you know, as we discussed, flipped Egypt out of out of the conflict and therefore made state-to-state -state conflict between Israel and the Arab states a thing of the past after that happened, after the Israel-Egypt peace treaty that Carter negotiated, but he stood on Kissinger's shoulders. Um, you know, that was that was essentially it. No Arab state could contemplate going to war with Israel and did not. But uh you know, the, the countries like, like the Gulf states uh, were originally looking for cover from the Palestinians. And in fact, the Oslo Accords uh, provided that cover for them. And they started normalizing back in the time when I was in the Clinton administration. They had, they had diplomatic presence in, in Tel Aviv and, and uh, Israel had diplomatic presence in the Gulf and in North Africa. Uh, but it all fell apart when the Intifada broke out, uh, the Palestinian uprising. And and um, that was in 2000. And so it's taken a long time to to get back to it. And, and essentially, um, they came back to it, uh, having given up on the idea that they needed some Palestinian cover, which was the original concern that they had. And that was a change, a fairly dramatic change in their approach. It was, by the way, not a dramatic change in the approach of Egypt or Jordan, for that matter. When they made peace with Israel, they didn't wait for the Palestinians. They didn't insist on anything meaningful for the Palestinians. In fact, it's ironic that the Emiratis were the ones that actually got something for the Palestinians. They stopped the annexation of the West Bank. Um, but, but I think what it does show for better and for worse is that the Arab states are no longer prepared to wait for the Palestinians. And, and um, there's an opportunity there in terms of advancing the normalization process with other Arab countries. There's a need for that in terms of this Kissingerian challenge of, of concerting a balance of power against 
Iran, which remains the revolutionary state in the region. And, and so, uh, you know, an uh, alliance between Israel and the Arab states that's fortified by normalization between them is something that's very much in the interest of, of stabilizing the order in a Kissingerian way. But if we don't find a way to address the Palestinian issue as well, uh, it will end up disrupting the order, just like um, the failure to address Egyptian grievances back in 1973 led to the 1973 war. I can't tell you exactly how the explosion is going to come, but I feel it in my bones that it will come sooner or later. The Palestinians will not sit quietly um, forever uh, under military occupation. So how do we go about advancing um, Palestinian nationhood in all of these circumstances um, from a kind of Kissingerian uh, point of view? Is there a way forward or, I mean, kind of uh, biding our time, treading water, uh, motion without movement? It doesn't seem to be advancing the cause of peace at all today. Yes. Well, first of all, I think um, that you know, we, we kind of tried all the other alternatives, which was repeated efforts to try to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And they failed. And so I think it's really appropriate. And it was the conclusion I reached in the book that we need to return to Kissingerian first principles in trying to address the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Because trying to end the conflict, which Kissinger was always against, didn't work. In fact, it blew up in our faces. And so what would a Kissingerian approach look like now? Well, it would be step by step, naturally. Uh, now, the Israeli government of Bennett and Lapid, which is a left-right coalition government that can't agree on what the final outcome should be, is willing to take some steps. So already we've got, you know, a willingness on their, on their part of the Israelis to do that. And so a Kissingerian approach would be to get behind that and give it a push. Uh, I say a push because at the moment, the steps they're taking are basically designed to improve the economic conditions of the Palestinians. It's not, a, it's not enough within that uh, objective what they're doing is not enough because the Palestinian Authority is about to, to collapse economically. So they need to do more in that regard. Uh, but um, Kissinger was very uh, clear that his peace process required Israel to give up territory. That was what lubricated his peace process. And Israel has agreed to give up territory in the West Bank, according to the Oslo Accords, which was absolutely Kissingerian in Rabin's approach. It was three phases of withdrawal by Israel without any definition in the Oslo Accords of what the final outcome would be. There's no Jerusalem, Palestinian state, refugees, nothing like that in the Oslo Accords. So in a way we can, you know, Oslo has become a dirty word, but the basic idea of Israel giving up territory 
to create a Palestinian state in the making. That's Kissinger's terms. Palestinian state in the making with attributes of sovereignty is the way that I think we need to move forward. I think the, the Biden administration can get behind that and that it won't break up the uh, uh, Israeli coalition. Um, and, and it will give re renewed credibility to a peace process that has none at the moment. Right. Well, Ambassador Martinik, on that uh, somewhat despondent note, uh, I thank you for coming on the Caravan podcast. You can follow Ambassador Indic on Twitter at, at Martin underscore Indic. And do be sure to check out his new book, Master of the Game, Henry Kissinger and the Art of Middle East Diplomacy. Please subscribe to the Caravan podcast. My colleague Russell Berman will be back soon for the next episode. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.